So Jordan, if you could bring that first slide up. This is a response that we're going to see. And we're going to read this, and we're going to read it three times so that we become familiar with it, so that we can let it sink into us, so that as we repeat the words, the words will resonate within us. So if we don't get it right the first time, it's okay. We'll have another chance. So read with me. Mighty your acts and marvelous, O God, the sovereign strong, righteous your ways and true, King of the nations. Who can fail to fear you, God? Give glory to your name, because you and only are holy. All nations will come and worship you, because they see your judgments are right. Let's do it again. Mighty your acts and marvelous, O God, the sovereign strong. Righteous your ways and true, King of the nations. Who can fail to fear you, God? Give glory to your name, because you... All right, now just y'all. Third time, go. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said earlier, my, my name is John Ray. We're really glad you're here. I'm part of the elder group here at Grace Church, and we're particularly glad if you're listening on podcasts, watching on the Facebook live feed, we're really glad that you're here this morning. I kidded with Alex and some of the other people that earlier this week I had a bit of a glory hangover if that's a thing. Um, but after our worship last week where we heard the sharing of the testimonies and then the things that were going on in our leaders meeting and then the uh, baby shower for Sikitu that took place after that, I was so full. I was so encouraged. I was just brimming over with gratefulness that as I went into the week, it was a little bit about coming down off a sugar high a little bit, I guess would be the the example. And how many of you were there at the baby shower? Sakiti's baby shower, right? So I heard it was a very different experience. Like it wasn't like a normal American baby shower, was it? Not at all? Yeah, my daughter Naomi came home and she's like, yeah, our baby showers stink. <laughs> like that's the way you do a baby shower with that. And if you weren't there, find somebody who was there and talk to them. But as we were sharing about it, um, in Abide, our brother got up to, to share their, his gratitude. He said something to the extent of this. He said, we don't do this where I come from. Because to give gifts to a child that's not yet born, most children don't make it. So why would you do that? And then he went on to say, this is a sign that things are different here. Grace Church, the book of Revelation, 
likewise is a sign that things are going to be different. It's a sign that the death, the disease, the injustice that we experience is not going to be the way things are. That God is now working, has worked, and will work all things to perfection and change things. Revelation, in a way, is this huge celebration of what is to come, what is to be born, what is to grow in that. And so as we get into the text today, let us pray that we can celebrate with that. And Jesus, we do pray. We pray in your name to the glory of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would explode our imaginations, that you would lead us to repentance that comes from hope, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to obey, hands to work, minds to understand all that you are proclaiming through your word and through the testimony of the saints. That you would lead us into this future that you have promised. That we would turn and orient ourselves towards you more fully and walk with more courage and act with more conviction on the reality of what is to come. We know we can't do this alone. It's not going to happen by willpower or wishful thinking. It's going to be accomplished by your spirit. So send your spirit now to do this thing in us, among us, and through us. We pray again in the name of Jesus. Amen. So who are you to judge? It's a common refrain that we hear in our society. Of course, we could say that judgment happens. In the same way that a few weeks ago we talked about politics, it's not a question, are you going to be political or not? The question is, how are you going to be political? Judgment happens. Whether we want it to happen or not, judgment is going on all the time. We're all making judgments in a thousand different ways, but that's not the judgment people are talking about when they say someone is judgmental or they're judgy or that they shouldn't judge. In that context, they're talking about something different from making a choice based on comparative merits or cost. They're talking about making a moral assessment. They're talking about assigning innocence or blame. They're talking about something very, very important. And so is the Bible. Because judgment does happen, and it will happen, and we had better understand what it means. How we understand God's judgment determines much about what we think about God, and that determines much about how we live our lives. So as we read the text this morning, and there's a lot of text, there's a lot of text that we're going to cover. We're going to be interactive, though. There are places in here where the church, or it says the witnesses, proclaim something in response to what God is doing. 
And again, we've talked a bit about this on numerous times. Look, this is not about more information. I hope you didn't do that this morning. I hope you didn't come here just for more information. No, there's going to be information. But the main thing is to internalize this, is to be changed by it, is to encounter the text in a way that leads us to the response by the leading of the Holy Spirit that changes us, changes this church, changes our community, and changes the world. And so we are going to practice that response this morning. As I read and we come to those portions in the text where the, where the witnesses would respond, we are going to respond. We're going to join with them and out loud add our response to the text. We're starting at the first of chapter 15 where we spent a little time in last week. So are you ready? I saw another sign in heaven, huge and breathtaking. Seven angels with seven disasters. These are the final disasters, the wrap-up of God's wrath. I saw something like a sea made of glass. The glass all shot through with fire, carrying harps of God, triumphant over the beast, the image, and the number of its name. The saved ones stood on the sea of glass. They sang the song of Moses, servant of God. They sang the song of the Lamb, saying, Mighty your acts, and marvelous, O God, the sovereign strong. Then I saw the doors of the temple, the tent of witness in heaven, open wide. The seven angels carrying the seven disasters came out of the temple. They were dressed in clean, bright linen and wore gold vessels. One of the four animals handed the seven angels seven gold bowls, brimming with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Smoke from God's glory and power poured out of the temple. No one was permitted to enter the temple until the seven disasters of the seven angels were finished. I heard a shout of command from the temple to the seven angels, begin, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on earth. The first angel stepped up and poured out his bowl onto the earth. Loathsome, stinking sores erupted on all who had taken the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea. The sea coagulated into blood and everything in it died. The third angel poured his bowl on rivers and springs. The water was turned to blood. I heard the angel of waters say, They poured out the blood of the saints and prophets. So you've given them blood to drink. They've gotten what they deserve. Just then I heard the altar chime in. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun. Fire blazed from the sun and scorched men and women. Burned and blistered, they cursed God's name. The God behind these disasters, they refused to repent, refused to honor God. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast. Its kingdom fell into sudden eclipse. Mad with pain, men and women bit and chewed their tongues, cursed the God of heaven for their torment and sores, and refused to repent and change their ways. 
The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great Euphrates River. It dried up to nothing. The dry riverbed became a fine roadbed for the kings of the east. From the mouths of dragons, the beast, the false prophet, I saw three foul demons crawl out. They look like frogs. These are demon spirits performing signs. They're after the kings of the whole world to get them gathered for battle in the great day of God, the sovereign strong. Keep watch, I come unannounced like a thief. You're blessed if awake and dressed, you're ready for me. Too bad if you're found running through the streets naked and ashamed. The frog demons gathered the kings together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now let's pause for a minute here because as we hit certain terms, certain images come to mind and Armageddon is one of those places. Armageddon is not a Bruce Willis movie. Well, it is a Bruce Willis movie, but that's not what's being talked about here. Armageddon is a specific place that holds a specific place in the imagination of the people of Israel. Many of the battles and the the epic events in Israel's histories took place close or or within this valley. But don't be deceived. Look, it's, Armageddon is something that all of us face. All of us have that place where we battle. All of us have that place where we come into conflict with the temptations, with the things that seek to overcome us and dissuade us, to pervert us, to take us away to compromise us. All of us face Armageddon, not just the people in this text. This is where we look also for our victory, though, through the trial. But let's continue. The seventh angel poured out bowl into the air, poured his bowl into the air. From the throne in the temple came a shout, Done! followed by lightning flashes and shouts, thunder crashes and a colossal earthquake, a huge and devastating earthquake, never an earthquake like this since time began. The great city split three ways. The cities of the nations toppled to ruin. Great Babylon had to drink the wine of God's raging anger. God remembered to give her the cup. Every island fled and not a mountain was to be found. Hailstones weighing a ton plummeted, crushing, smashing men and women as they cursed God for the hail, the epic disaster of hail. One of the seven angels who carried the seven bowls came and invited me, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great whore who sits enthroned over many waters, the whore with whom the kings of the earth have gone whoring. Show now the judgment on the earth dwellers drunk on her whorish lust. And again, we must pause here and ask who or what is this whore? Why is this metaphor so repeatedly used? And I defer to Eugene Peterson here who writes this. He said, the great whore image is not about sex. It is a metaphor for worship gone wrong. The great danger that the world poses for us is not in its gross evils, but in its easy religion. The promise of success, ecstasy, and meaning that we can get for a price is whore worship. It is the diabolical inversion of you are bought with a price to I can get that for you wholesale. What is being spoken here of 
is all of our propensity, my propensity, to want to get something on the cheap, to want to make it about me, to center the meaning in my getting rather than my giving. Horror worship is presented throughout what we're going to read in contrast to bride being. You see, the contrast to worshiping the whore, the contrast to making worship, church, religion, God, all about me, my needs, my wants, my comfort, my convenience, my preferences, the contrast is to making it all about God and becoming the bride. That's what we're doing here, church, is we're learning how to be the bride. We're learning how to be the one who receives Jesus, welcomes Jesus, worships Jesus, wants Jesus, and is ready for Jesus with that. That is what we are doing as the church. Back to the text. In the spirit, he carried me out of the desert. I saw a woman mounted on a scarlet beast stuffed with blasphemies. The beast had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, festooned with gold and gems and pearls. She held a gold chalice in her hand, brimming with defiling obscenities, her foul fornications. A riddle name was branded on her forehead, Great Babylon, mother of whores and ambitions of the earth. I could see that the woman was drunk, drunk on the blood of God's holy people, drunk on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, astonished. I rubbed my eyes and shook my head in wonder. The angel said, does this surprise you? Let me tell you the riddle of the woman with the beast and the beast she rides. The beast with seven heads and ten horns, the beast you saw once was, is no longer, and is about to ascend from the abyss and head straight for hell. Earth dwellers whose names weren't written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be dazzled when they see the beast that once was, is no longer, and is to come. But don't drop your guard. Use your head. The seven angels, the seven heads are the seven hills. They are where the woman sits. They are also the seven kings, five dead, one living, another not yet here. And when he does come, his time will be brief. The beast that once was and is no longer and is both an eighth and one of the seventh and headed for hell. The ten horns you saw are ten kings, but they're not yet in power. They will come to power with the scarlet beast, but won't last for long, a very brief reign. The kings will agree to turn over their power and authority to the beast. They will go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them, proof that he is lord over all lords, king over all kings, and those with him will be called, chosen, and faithful. The angel continued, The waters which you saw the horror was enthroned are peoples and crowds, nations and languages, and the ten horns you saw together with the beast will turn on the whore. They'll hate her, violate her, strip her naked, rip her apart with their teeth, and then set fire to her. It was God who put the idea in their heads to turn over the rule to the beast until the words of God are completed. The woman you saw is the great city, tyrannizing the kings of the earth. Following this, I saw another angel descend from heaven. His authority was immense. His glory flooded the earth with brightness. His voice thunderous, ruined, ruined, great Babylon ruined. 
A ghost town for demons is all that's left. A garrison of carrion spirits, garrison of loathsome carrion birds. All nations drank the wild wine of her whoring. Kings of the earth went whoring after her. Entrepreneurs made millions exploiting her. Just then I heard another shout from heaven, Get out, my people, just as fast as you can, so you don't get mixed up in her sins, so you don't get caught up in her doom. Her sins stink to high heaven. God has remembered every evil thing she's done. Give her back what she's given, double what she's doubled in her work, double the recipe of the cup she's mixed. Bring her flaunting in wild ways to torment and tears. Because she gloated, I'm queen over all, and no widow, never a tear on my face. In one day, disaster will crush her, death, heartbreak, and famine. Then she'll be burned by fire because God, the strong God who judges, has had enough. The kings of the earth will see the smoke of her burning and they'll cry and carry on. The kings who went night after night to her brothel, they'll keep their distance for fear they'll get burned and they'll cry their lament. Doom, doom, the great city is doomed. City of Babylon, strong city. In one hour, it's over. Your judgment has come. The traders will cry and carry on because the bottom dropped out of business. No more market for their goods. Gold, silver, precious gems, pearls, fabrics of fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, perfumed wood, and vessels of ivory, precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, and spice, incense, and myrrh, and frankincense, wine, and oil, flour, and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. They're terrible traffic in human lives. Everything you've lived for, gone. All delicate and delectable luxury, lost. Not a scrap, not a thread to be found. The traders who made made millions off her kept their distance for fear of getting burned and cried and carried on all the more. Doom, doom, the great city doomed, dressed in the latest fashions, adorned with the finest jewels. In one hour, such wealth wiped out. All the ship captains and travelers by sea, sailors and toilers of the sea, stood off at a distance and cried their lament when they saw the smoke from her burning. Oh, what a city! There was never a city like her. They threw dust on their heads and cried as if the world had come to an end. Doom, doom, the great city doomed. All who owned ships or did business by sea got rich on her getting and spending, and now it's over, wiped out in one hour. Oh, heaven, celebrate. And join in, saints, apostles, and prophets. God has judged her. Every wrong you suffered from her has been judged. A strong angel reached for a boulder, huge like a millstone, and heaved it into the sea, saying, Heaved and sunk, the great city of Babylon sunk in the sea, not a sign of her ever again. Silent, the music of harpists and singers. You'll never hear flutes and trumpets again. Artisans of every kind gone, you'll never see the likes again. A voice of a millstone grinding falls dumb, you'll never hear that sound again. The light from lamps, never again, never again. Laughter of bride and groom, her traitors robbed the whole earth blind. By black magic, arts deceive the nations. The only thing left of Babylon is blood. The blood of saints and prophets, the murdered and the martyred. I heard a sound like massed criers in heaven singing.
Then more singing, hallelujah, the sunk, the smoke from her burning billows up to high heaven forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four animals fell to their knees and worshiped God on his throne, praising amen, yes, hallelujah. From the throne came a shout, a command, praise our God, all you servants, all you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard the sound of massed choirs, the sound of a mighty cataract, the sound of strong thunder. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He added, these are the true words of God. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he wouldn't let me. Don't do that, he said. I'm just a servant, just like you, and like your brothers and sisters who hold to the witness of Jesus. The witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open wide, and oh, a white horse and its rider the rider named Faithful and True judges and makes war in pure righteousness. His eyes are a blaze of fire. On his head, many crowns. He has a name inscribed that's known only to himself. He's dressed in a robe soaked with blood, and he's addressed as Word of God. The armies of heaven mounted on white horses and dressed in dazzling white linen follow him. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth so he can subdue the nations, then rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the raging wrath of God, the sovereign strong. On his robe and thigh is written, King of kings, Lord of lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to all flying birds in middle heaven, Come to the great supper of God. Feast on the flesh of the kings and captains and champions, horses and their riders. Eat your fill of them, free and slave, small and great. I saw the beast and assembled with him the earth kings and their armies ready to make war against the one on the horse and his army. The beast was taken and with him his puppet, the false prophet, who used, who used signs to dazzle and deceive those who had taken the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. They were thrown alive, those two, into the lake of fire and brimstone. The rest were killed by the sword of the one on the horse, the sword that comes from his mouth. All the birds held a feast on their flesh. I saw an angel descending out of heaven. He carried the key to the abyss, abyss and a chain, a huge chain. He grabbed the dragon, that old snake, the very devil, Satan himself. Chained him up for a thousand years and dumped him into the abyss. Slammed it shut and sealed it tight. No more trouble out of him. Deceiving the nations until a thousand years up. After that, he has to be let loose briefly. I saw thrones. Those put in charge of judgment sat on their thrones. I also saw the souls of those beheaded because of their witness to Jesus and the word of God who refused to worship either the beast or his image, refused to take his mark on their forehead or hand. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were up. This is the first resurrection and those involved most blessed, most holy, no second death for them. They're the priest of God. They'll reign with him a thousand years. When a thousand years are up, Satan will be let loose from his cell, will launch again his old work of deceiving the nations, searching out victims in every nook and cranny of earth, even Gog and Magog. He'll talk them into going to war. He will gather a huge army, millions strong. They'll stream across the earth, 
Surround and lay city to the camp of God's holy people, the beloved city. They'll no sooner get there than fire will pour from heaven and burn them up. The devil who deceived them will be hurled into the lake of fire and brimstone, joining the beast and the false prophet, the three in torment around the clock for ages without end. I saw a great white throne and the one enthroned. Nothing could stand before or against the presence. Nothing in heaven, nothing in earth. And then I saw all the dead, great and small, standing there before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, by the way they had lived. Sea released its dead. Death and hell turned in their dead. Each man and woman was judged by the way he or she had lived. Then death and hell were hurled into lake fire. This is the second death, lake fire. Anyone whose name has not found inscribed in the book of life was hurled into lake fire. It's a lot. It's graphic. It's exhaustive in its scope, in its meaning, in its reach. As we have been working our way through Revelation, it's been interesting to note the various responses, my own response, the response of those of you sitting here, the response who listen to this. To some, it's a radically scary notion. And that fear, more than any good theology, is what drives much of our imagination around rapture. But to others, as was noted by Lucian in our teaching team this week, the response is, about time. It's about time. It makes sense that those of us who are comfortable and at home in this world, who hold power and privilege and are content with the way things are going, whose future is bright and whose chances are excellent, would be frightened by such words and images. On the other hand, if you have gotten the short end of the stick, if you have suffered and been persecuted, if you have endured scorn and your prospects aren't so bright, this book carries great Revelation, even with all the images we just listened to, comes as a comfort. And we need to be clear that the trials represented, the numerous times spoken of here, the judgments are all opportunities to repent. You see, judgment is a time when truth comes out, all of it, every single bit. There is nothing we ever do, ever will do, that will be hidden. Judgment is when the truth comes out. And while we may blanch at the number and the severity of the trials, it was noted again in the teaching meeting that they are not so much retributive in nature as relevatory and restorative. This is not a God peeved who's getting revenged. This is a compassionate God doing everything to wake his people up. You know, maybe that's what Jesus was getting at on the Sermon of the Mount 
I encourage you to go read that, Matthew 5, 1 through 20, the Beatitudes, we call them. In some ways, I think it's a blessing for those who are awake to the condition of the world, the condition of their soul. They're awake to that and they hunger and thirst for righteousness to be restored, for health to be restored, for freedom to be restored. And the sermon's also about calling others to wake up to that reality. You see, our perspective on where we are in this world will determine how we emotionally respond to the, eye of ju- the idea of judgment. And I want you to take some time. I want to encourage you. You know, one of our critical values here at Grace Church is that we study things together. And in the learning guide this week, under the journal section, you'll see a chance, an invitation to just examine, to pay attention to how do you respond emotionally to what is said here? How do you respond to this text? What is it well up within you? And I encourage you to do that exercise this week and listen to what your heart, your spirit, your emotions are saying as you read the text. But as I said when I started, it doesn't really matter whether we like judgment or not. Judgment happens. And I would add to this, that if there is no judgment, then nothing matters. I'll let that sit in for a minute. Because we can be overwhelmed with the images. We can be overwhelmed with the, the details and who gets what and how does it happen and when does it happen and where does it happen. And we can get all caught up in that and lose sight that, hey, without it, because, because when we get caught up in those details, we have a tendency just, it's too much, I don't want to think about it, let's put it away. But if there is no judgment, nothing matters. Just about all of the ologies out there, theology chief among them, is concerned with asking the question, what's the meaning of life? But if we ask that question, we have to ask, start with and assume that there is meaning in the first place. Many in our world have come to the conclusion there is no meaning. It is all random. It doesn't matter what you do, how you act, what you think about. It doesn't matter because there is no meaning to it. It is all just random result of a godless universe. But if there is judgment, there is meaning. How we deal with it, consciously or not, determines a great deal about how we go about living our lives. We are theologians, everyone. And how we answer the question about this meaning that judgment gives has a great deal to do with how we live. I loved what Lucian said earlier as he talked about this because it is easy to to walk out feeling, feeling overwhelmed, feeling burdened until we remember that the Jesus described here is also the Jesus described in the Gospels. The suffering servant. He is the one who's come, who's paid the price. He is the prophet who, and the priest who pleads for us. He is all these things. Christianity is not a simple cookie-cutter, cardboard-cutout religion. And neither is our Savior. The mysteries of the ages wrapped into a human being? 
The same one who comes to judge at the, at the end is the one who created in the beginning, who came and made the way for us to be reconciled. That, that's, that's generations, that's lifetimes to figure out, to get around that. And we can never reduce Jesus just simply to some cardboard character with that. But we do need to remember, whenever we get tempted to go too far one way or another, to look at the whole picture. This Jesus who judges is also the Jesus who saves, who serves, who will not be outgiven, outsacrificed, outloved. That is our Jesus. And he is the only one who will judge, and he is the only one qualified to judge. Finally, I want to say this. Judgment is the thing that opens us up to salvation. If there is no judgment, there's no need to be saved. If there is no judgment, no meaning, saved from what? It makes no sense. There's nothing there. Salvation is what Revelation is really about, y'all. Not dragons or apocalypses or raptures or frogs. They're all there, but that's not what it's about. It is a song of the salvation of Jesus. His triumph, our salvation. His kingdom, our redemption. His glory and his story. But without judgment, none of it really matters or even makes sense. Alex spoke as we were talking this week about how we have a tendency to think of sin as a moral event, just a violating of some code there instead of something inherent that we need to be continually saved from as a process of determining where we're headed to or from. I've heard it been said that the real American religion is denial and optimism. And I wholeheartedly agree. We deny the catastrophe of our condition with wholesale objections, willed ignorance, and an economy fueled by selling escapist fantasies of every imaginable make. But even then, we can't escape the nagging feeling that something's wrong, something's coming, something is different and so when we get that feeling, we just throw ourselves into it. We'll fix it. We'll just create another system, another government, another whatever. And by our own willpower, we will pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make it right. And then get back to watching the game. Denial and optimism. We swim in it. We swim in it. Judgment, however, makes us come to terms with the catastrophic reality. The catastrophic reality of a world where injustice, oppression, death, slavery, trafficking of all kinds are commodified and profited from. 
That's the whore. Judgment brings those things and calls them what they are and puts the blame squarely on us. It is not God's fault. And it is not someone else's fault. It is our fault. It is my fault. But you see, we can do that. We can face that squarely without being crushed, without being killed, without giving up because we see the hope. God doesn't drop that on us and just let us stew in it, hopeless. No, no, no. That's why God came first as the servant, first as the son. He comes promising, portraying, embodying the hope of salvation. And when we embrace that, when we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, nor persecution, nor sword, nor anything else in all creation, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Then we can look clear-eyed at the judgment. Then we can look clear-eyed at the things. Y'all, we are the only people As followers of Jesus, we are the only people who have what it takes to look squarely, realistically, clear-eyed and with courage at the way things really are. Everything else is illusion, escapist fantasy, some self-help movement. Revelation, the only way we dare to open the pages is because we've read the Gospels and they're in the same book. And we see it all together. We are neither in denial nor are we optimistic. We are people of faith. People of faith in this God. With no judgment, things really aren't that bad. And if they really aren't that bad, hey, we can just work a little bit harder to fix them. Such thinking makes God unnecessary, irrelevant. It makes his salvation song a quaint tribal artifact. John will have none of it. The early church was clearly warned against it. To admit the righteous nature of God's judgment is to come face to face with our own catastrophe and understand God's salvation as the only thing that really matters, the only thing that can save us. If there is no judgment, there is no need of God. If there is no judgment, nothing matters. And ask the worship team to come up. Because we have a choice now. Every one of us, and collectively, we have a choice. 